Radiolab is supported by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, exercising, cleaning. What if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com, Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yeah. Lulu? Yeah. Hello. Hi. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you. All right. Do you do you have your orange slices? I've got them. I have a confession. Hello, this is Radio Lab. I'm Lulu Miller, and recently our producer Becca Bressler told me to call her up and somewhat mysteriously bring orange slices. She said it would help get me in the mood for the story she wanted to tell. I guess where do we start? So months ago, we decided to have this meeting where everyone came to it with monoliths. Like, what are groups that we think of as being monolithic? Like, every video game player lives in his mom's basement and is a dude and, you know. Right. And at some point, the idea of soccer moms came up. Okay. And, like, of of course I've heard of the phrase, I played soccer, I have a mom. But I got sort of curious about where she came from. Like, how did she become a monolith? Hmm. And so I started poking around... And what I learned is that Campaign 96. she was born in the run-up to the 1996 presidential election. Tonight, in the land of Lincoln, the convention of Clinton. The Bill Clinton is running for re-election. He's the incumbent against Bob Dole, the Republican candidate. And the soccer mom was this little slice of voters who helped hand him the election and completely changed the way political campaigns did what they do from that point forward. Okay. Hello. Hi, Anne. And I should say, I learned this story from these two women who worked on Bill Clinton's campaign that year. I joined formally around Labor Day 1995. Anne Lewis, communications director. And the deputy campaign manager. And hey, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you great. Pollster still in the lake. I was brought on to do some special projects including uh, looking at women voters. So Clinton had won his first term in large part thanks to women voters. That's 92. But then... In 94, drop off. The women who had made a big difference in 92, less likely to vote. So in 1996, the Clinton campaign needed to convince those women to come back to Clinton. And they started thinking like, okay, we can't just say, hey, women, Clinton's your guy. We need a way to focus our message. We need to find a group of undecided women that was large enough to make a difference in the election, but cohesive enough that you could identify key issues they all cared about and tailor your message to them. Oh, interesting. And after doing a bunch of polling and research, they landed on this cluster of women who were moms, who lived in suburbia, who tended to be college educated. Maybe in our 30s and 40s. Tended to work outside the home. Predominantly white. Were more secular. It was just a cluster of trades. But according to the polling, there were a lot, millions of them. And they seemed to be up for grabs. They were the most valuable swing voters. And just as they were zeroing in on this massive, swayable slice of America, this woman running for city council in Denver... Susan Casey... ...gave a speech. And she said, I am a soccer mom running for elections. And I thought, oh, yeah. That's it. That's who these women are. The soccer mom. Soccer moms. NBC News in depth tonight. The political professionals this year have called them soccer moms. They may be the most influential voters in the country right now. Kellyanne, tell me what is a soccer mom? The so-called soccer moms are these uh, predominantly white women who live in the suburbs. They are the most hotly pursued voters in this election. And the soccer mom became this political force to be reckoned with. Get in there, Randy! 
They may sit on the sidelines at soccer games, but these women are front and center in this year's presidential campaign. A force that Ann and Celinda started to harness. Recruit them and talk to them. Get 10 soccer moms in a room. Finding out what they wanted and then promising to give it to them. Television ads promote Clinton initiatives on family leave, parental control over television programming. The Clinton campaign started rolling out policies about tobacco advertising. We fought to protect our children from the harmful effects of tobacco advertising aimed at them. U.S. President Bill Clinton has unveiled a program designed to keep guns out of the hands of young people. Gun control. If it means that teenagers will stop killing each other over designer jackets, then our public schools should be able to require their students to wear school uniforms. School uniforms, sometimes just little things that these soccer moms cared about. And it appears to be working. Polls show most of these women leaning towards Clinton. Among them, Bill Clinton has a stunning 28-point lead over Bob Dole. And on November 5th, 1996, Clinton won. Thank you for being here. In part, because he locked down the soccer mom vote. He won, yes, he won the soccer mom, and it was key to his victory, actually. Men split their vote for Dole and Clinton. Women, on the other hand, 55% of women voted for Clinton, and only 38% of women voted for Bob Dole. Hmm. So women elected Bill Clinton. And what pollsters and strategists would realize over the years is that targeting their campaign messages to ever finer and more specific groups, it works. And over the years, who this target was has mutated. It became the security moms after 9-11, the NASCAR dads, Joe Sixpack, the Walmart moms. And these voting blocks just kept getting smaller and smaller. Campaigns now have access to so much more information. People are more interested in sort of slicing and dicing and making distinctions. Like, for example, as I was doing this soccer mom reporting, I came across this map in Politico In 2016, they went looking for the new iteration of the soccer mom. And you could move your cursor across different swing states, and it would highlight these very specific, cutesy-named groups of voters. Hmm. So, like, in Colorado, you had the newly mortgages, who were people who just bought a house. There were white women of Vegas, lunch pail Catholics, skittish soldiers, battleship makers. Cuban millennials. And I just really loved how incredibly specific this map was. Jay Levy. Hi, Jay. This is Becca Bressler calling from Radio Lab. And so I first just called up a bunch of political strategists and pollsters to get a sense of what would this map look like today? You know, what are the surprising hidden slices out there in today's election? So the one that I've been using personally is Trader Joe Republicans. I heard about sunset boomers in Florida. I mean, you know, in rural New Mexico, there's a lot of Hispanic cowboys. Utterly unsure dairy farmers in Wisconsin. So I'm looking at three or four interesting groups of voters that I think are very nuanced, very targeted, but at the same time, very influential and very powerful. Let's start with what I call Island Ricans. Okay, Bex, I see the charm in these names. And how the more particular and specific you get with these slices, the more seductive it becomes. But at the same time, are these just strategists throwing names on the chaos to give themselves an illusion of control? So, yeah, I I wondered that, too. And at the same time, I thought we're constantly being told the country is solidly divided into two camps. But we also know this place is increasingly diverse. And there's just got to be so much more complexity out there. So I just grabbed a few other producers to go peek into some of these slices to see, you know, are these groups real? And are there people in them who could swing this election one way or another? First up is producer Tobin Lowe. Tobin, what is the name of your slice? I got Trader Joe's Republicans. Trader Joe's Republicans. Okay. Okay, so what what are they? There are Republicans that are sold in the snack aisle of Trader Joe's. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, No, these are Republican voters, specifically in Texas. um, And according to the political strategist who told us about them, they have some preferences that at least I might stereotype as qualities of liberals. So like they shop at Trader Joe's, they listen to NPR, 
they may have things in their home that say live, laugh, love, which is so oddly specific. It is. Uh, And a, a thing that's tripping them up this year is that they are very conflicted about Donald Trump. Uh, It was described that they generally don't like him and they're very unsure of how to vote when it comes to the presidency, but they do plan on voting for other down-ballot Republican issues and to make sure Republicans don't lose Senate seats. Is this like a big group? Could they they actually sway the vote away from Trump? Uh, Nobody is quite sure, but I will say... I know I'm not the only one that holds... I mean, I'm certainly not the only one that holds these sort of unique set of views. It was not hard to find one. My name is Tori Moreland. I'm actually a political consultant here in Austin, Texas. She calls herself a small L libertarian. But I certainly have a Republican voting record. Does she actually shop at Trader Joe's? I do. She loves the Shaolong Bao. What is the Shaolong Bao? Soup dumplings that they keep frozen. Um, that's one of my favorite snacks. Do you listen to NPR? I do, yes. Do you have anything in your house that says live, laugh, love? Oh, my God, no. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. But uh, she loves or loved the Colbert Report. You have to be able to laugh at yourself, I I find. I think as somebody who works in politics and and kind of sees how the sausage is made, you got to laugh at at some of it sometimes. And the thing that really stood out to me is that her progressive trappings— They don't really stop at the surface level. Climate change. Do you believe in climate change? Yes, very much so. Do you find yourself in uh, pro-choice, pro-life? I am pro-choice, but I will admit that's that's probably um, not as common. It's interesting for me to hear you talk about these progressive ideas, just because they're things that I'm used to associating more with the Democratic Party. What is it for you that keeps you from being a Democrat? I mean, if I had to put it into a single item, I would say it's this idea of who is the better provider of solutions and outcomes. Mm. I think the left tends to take this view that government is ultimately the best and most effective way of um, creating large-scale solutions. And I feel that's not the case, that actually, whether it's the free market or just... um, you know, folks coming together can can voluntarily create solutions that are superior. You know, she talks about this sort of conflicted mix of experiences. You know, on the one hand, liberal values of Austin are seeping in. Austin is such a unique place in the sense that progressive ideas, um, truly like, you know, Democrat socialist ideas are the mainstream. But on the other hand, she feels her childhood guiding her. And she was raised in a very conservative community in Texas. The buckle of the Bible belt. And speaking of buckles and conservatism, she remembers growing up that her dad had this passionate resistance to seatbelt laws. That isn't the role of government. And I, he really harpened on this idea of what the role of government is and, and its limits and why those limits exist and why they're important. How do you feel about Donald Trump? I mean, I think we'll look back on this moment in history and be saddened by what took place. I think, though, there's a real danger to the opposite side as well that wants to take us down a path that I don't think leads to the ends that I have in mind that are about maximizing choice. Do you know how she voted in the last election? She didn't vote for president. She did show up to vote for other Republicans and uh, to vote on certain issues she cared about, but she abstained from voting for president. Does she have thought, does she know what she's going to do in this one? Yeah, so I've seen a ton of buzz online, this idea of who could possibly be an undecided voter in mid-October of a presidential election, considering who's at the top of the ticket. And on the one hand, I say, yeah, who would be undecided? But then I really, when I think about myself going to the ballot box and making that decision, I'm very much conflicted. And so I find myself truly in mid-October in 2020, an undecided voter in terms of the top ticket item for president. I'm not sure if I want to go third party or sit it out entirely as I did in 2016.
producer Tobin Lowe. Next up, Sarakari. Hi. Hi, Lulu. Um, so what slice did you pick? What is the name of your slice? Okay, so the slice that I dove into is the Patel Motel Cartel. Patel Motel Cartel. Yes, exactly. <laughs> have you heard that term before? <laughs> yes, I have. Mm-hmm. Yes. I read the whole article on that Patel Motel Cartel before. The name comes from this New York Times article about Indian American hotel owners. Uh, my name is Twinkle Patel, and I own hotels. Is that, like, offensive? I don't really find that offensive, personally. I don't find it offensive. Do you feel like you're a member of the Patel Motel Cartel? Yeah, absolutely. Why not? Yep, I am. <laughs> Wait, so what exactly is the Patel Motel Cartel? Okay, so it turns out something like half of all motels in the United States are owned by Indian Americans. Whoa, Um, half of what? Like tens of thousands of motels? Yeah. (laughs) And then like 70% of those people all have the last name Patel, um, which is a common surname in, you know, the Indian state of Gujarat, which is where a lot of these people's families happen to originate from. Oh, okay. It was a very viable business to go into. They can live on site. You know, they can run the property. They can minimize expenses. They don't have to pay rent. Hotels require a lot of labor. (laughs) Mm. And uh, often with, you know, our Indian South Asian families, we kind of have our built-in labor force, which is our family. (laughs) (laughs) And also the people who run these hotels and motels, they kind of stand out from the larger Indian American voting bloc. Um, Recent polling has shown that almost three quarters of Indian Americans are voting Democratic in this election. Wow, I didn't realize it was that high. Yeah, but a lot of these hotel owners that I talked to... I'm in Minneapolis, Tucson, Arizona. Many of them... Lima, Ohio. In swing states. Orlando, Florida. Maggie Valley, North Carolina. Well... I already put my vote in. I went all red. They're swinging hard for Trump. I vote for Trump. Definitely the Republican side. We've seen a huge savings uh, when we, you know, get our taxes, you know, after Trump got elected. The center of my universe is my hotels, my livelihood, and, and my work. This only president came out from the hotel industry, so he knows. The fact that he signed the front of a paycheck and not just the back of a paycheck. Not only signed the back of a check, he's also signed the front of a check. So there's this big group of Indian American hotel owners peppered all over swing states, lots of whom appear to be supporting Trump. Um, But the reason I found this slice so interesting, um, the reason it feels like a slice that could really swing an election is because it also contains guys like Mehul. Mehul Patel. Mehul lives in Minnesota. I've lived in Minneapolis for the last six years. And he owns a bunch of hotels with his family in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Minneapolis, Rochester, and throughout Wisconsin. His parents bought their first motel when he was 11 years old. It was a small motel. It was off a interstate that went between uh, Milwaukee and Green Bay. It was called Parkway Motel. That's where he grew up. When I was just going into high school, I remember, like, you know, most people are like, oh, like, Ooh, what are you doing this weekend? And it was like, oh, well, I'm helping clean rooms. He'd be helping fold towels, repainting the beige walls. You know, in the summers, I remember having an outdoor pool that I would help my dad maintain vacuuming the pool. Eventually, as he got older, as we saved money, his family buys more motels, a little bit bigger properties. And then once he finishes college, I kind of took over the business and Today, it's this huge business. They own like 12 hotels. So when we started talking about the election... You know, a lot of us small business owners are only looking at how it affects their business. This is our bread and butter. And, you know, these businesses is my parents' 401k. I was sort of expecting him to echo some of the things I'd heard earlier about, you know, liking Trump's tax cuts or opposing Biden's proposal for a federal $15 minimum wage. Historically, usually we've leaned Republican. You mean you and your family? Correct. But this year is a little different with everything going on. The pandemic has just crushed his business. We we were down 90 percent. Oh, wow. In the month of April and May compared to 
previous April and May. Oof. And now... The more that I read how COVID-19 was dealt with. I mean, did our administration know months in advance that this was coming? He's filled with all of these questions. Why wasn't there a travel ban? Why weren't we taking the proper measurements to try to uh, de-escalate it? And so as a result... I think a year ago, I would say uh, Trump would be my choice. Mm. But, you know, just what's happened. Um, now he's not so sure. And it's not just the pandemic. A lot of it is immigration. Trump's immigration policies are tougher than what Biden will have. The Trump administration has tightened restrictions on H-1B visas, which historically have been really important for Indian American immigrants. Joe Biden goes with that immigration policy a little bit better. But, but Biden also hasn't said much about how he's going to help As our conversation went on, (laughs) he kept swinging back and forth. Does Biden have some good things for the future as as far as health care, climate change and education? Yes. But if we don't get out of this and I have to start over with our businesses, that's a big blow to us. But then again, again, Trump has a little bit more of that business mind. Wow. So you kind of witnessed the slashing back and forth in real time. Totally. Totally. And from what he says, he's not alone. I'm a part. It sounds silly, but I'm part of these WhatsApp groups. With, like, other hotel owners. Every day reading other people's views on it is uh-huh. kind of like, oh, wow, I, I didn't look at it like that. Oh, wow. Like, you know, I didn't read it like that. Are you going to hold your nose in and vote for one or the other? I have not made the decision. Um, kind of still trying to see, you know, how, how things pan out. I mean, yeah. I know we're getting down to the wire, but every day is huge with what comes up and, you know, how they're speaking. I think it's going to be a game time decision. I would love to find out what you decide in the end. I'm on the edge of my seat. Yeah, it's it's not fun. (laughs) You know, it's, it's unpredictable. We don't know. Producer Sarah Kari. Next up, Tracy Hunt. All right. So, so Tracy, which slice did you pick? Well, I guess I picked an absence. Hmm. You know, you looked at that list that Becca put together and you noticed that they're not really talking about Black people. And that's because when it comes to the Black vote, pollsters don't really give us cute nicknames. They just sort of lump us all together. And I mean, I get it. Every four years, we see roughly 90 percent of Black Americans voting for the Democratic candidate. This is Christina Greer. I'm an associate professor of political science at Fordham University. And while the history of the Black vote in this country is super complicated, she says the main reason for this is pretty simple. If you look at the policies of the Republican Party, they have been, in the the more recent history, a more white nationalistic ideology, which a lot of Black people reject, obviously, because it's anti-Black. But the problem with treating the Black vote as a Black, she says, is it's just not. There are hardcore leftist progressives, there are folks in the middle, and then there are serious conservatives. Black folks are just sort of seen as this lump, but there's a lot of action going on there. And she told me about one politician who ran a campaign, then in a way... Good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here. ...proved that point. I am proud to be here to endorse Donald Trump for president of the United States. Chris Christie. So before he joined Team Trump, Christie was governor of New Jersey. And in his second race for that job in 2013, something kind of crazy happened. He got nearly a quarter of the Black vote. 21%. Wow. Were you surprised by the 21 percent? Yeah, we felt we felt quite good about it. I think we I think we more than doubled our number, our percentage among African-Americans. Why don't you go ahead and just like introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm Mike Duhame. I, I've worked for um, campaigns big and small, worked for President George W. Bush. I've worked for Senator John McCain, Rudy Giuliani and Governor Christie's races. So what happened? I mean, how did the Christie campaign do it? Well, he did a ton of events in majority black towns and cities. He did, I remember him doing a town hall meeting in Irvington, uh, New Jersey, which is right outside of it, borders on Newark. And he did that all over the place. He got endorsements from black politicians. There's one short visual of him hugging an African-American Democratic mayor. Also got an endorsement from a prominent black Democratic minister. Bishop Reginald Jackson. So why did you why did you support Chris Christie? 
I was very strong on education issues. I and mean, he was very supportive of uh, giving parents a choice and making sure that their children got a good education. I don't endorse many politicians, but Chris Christie is different. We also did a commercial with um, uh, Shaquille O'Neal. He's a good man. Excuse me. He's a great man. Please join me in support. And you know, there was this one other thing too, which meant a lot to me personally as a Black woman. When Whitney Houston died the year before, Chris Christie ordered all the flags in the state lowered to half-mast. And even when there was a backlash, he didn't back down. Huh. So you add that all up, and twice as many Black people as usual came out to vote for the Republican. So you might be wondering, who were they? Well, we can't really know for sure who they all were, obviously. But for the sake of doing the thing that none of these political consultants ever seem to do for Black people, let's try to visualize the Black voters Christie was trying to win over. All right. So, of course, you've got your Black Republicans. And according to sociologist Corey Fields... There's a fair amount of variation among Black Republicans. Some of them don't think about race when it comes to politics, but... Some do. Race-conscious Black Republicans, for them, you know, race is central to how they understand their lives. So, like, uh, something like school vouchers, right? right? Like, a race-conscious Black Republican would say, I support school vouchers because they empower Black parents to make decisions about their child's education. Mm -hmm. And who knows what's best for Black children? Their parents or, you know, some white administrator on the school board. Some Black Republicans support Trump. I'm, I'm glad that President Trump is more reserved as far as trying to do interventionalism. And I also appreciate his push to make us energy independent. And some, while I'm a Republican, do not. I'm basically an and, uh, independent until Trump leaves office. So that's the Black Republicans. Okay. But there are also some more swingable slices. When I was in New Jersey, I would tell everybody that I was a Democrat with an open mind. This, of course, is Bishop Reginald Jackson. Um, and Christie wasn't the first Republican he endorsed. He even voted for Nixon. I think I, I think Blacks need to vote in their best interest. But when Christie ran for president... They've been chanting in the streets for the murder of police officers. Well, individuals have, but the Black Lives Matter well, is about... But listen, that's what the movement is creating. I thought it was absolutely untrue and irresponsible. He didn't support him. Okay, so we've got a couple kinds of Black Republicans. We've got the Democrat with an open mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Any others? Yes. I think the inconsistent voters are maybe like, you know, that cousin. <laughs> it's like, I'm abstaining because it's the lesser of two evils. And it's like, I would call him that cousin. That cousin. I actually don't vote at all. And why is that? I don't feel as if politics is for us. Uh -huh. As far as, like, um, Republican, Democrat, I don't feel as if neither party's for us. Uh, who else? Who else? Like, the Southern grannies. Older Black women. Yeah. Very involved in their communities, church-going, staunch Democrats. I've always voted Democrat. You know, and vote consistently. I've never missed an election. My name is Minnie Smith. I'm 90 years old, and I'm in Houston, Texas. I vote every time it's time to vote. You know, those elections where people win with like 2,000 votes, like those are the Southern grannies. Producer Tracy Hunt. Radio Lab will be back in a moment. Hi, this is Emily, and I'm calling from Toronto, Canada. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Thanks. Science reporting on Radiolab is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Radiolab is supported by Z-Biotics. If you've been looking for some help waking up refreshed after a fun night out, Z-Biotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Z-Biotics is a genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to help tackle rough mornings after drinking. This probiotic is the first drink of the night for a better tomorrow, as it works to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. 
Go to zbiotics.com slash Radiolab to get 15% off your first order when you use Radiolab at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. If you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash Radiolab and use the code Radiolab at checkout for 15% off. Radiolab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about hustle culture. You know, the whole rise and grind, go big or go home thing. It's a lifestyle that may not be for you, but one that your money can handle thanks to Betterment. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. How? Their automated technology optimizes your investments again and again. With Betterment, your money is taking ice baths at 5 a.m. while you get your well-deserved rest. Your money downs protein smoothies and automatically reinvests your dividends all before you head out the door. Your money is a workaholic, but you don't have to be because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. About 600,000 people go missing every year in the U.S., prompting family members to become amateur detectives. On the trail of one missing person is journalist Tanya Mosley. Why do you think you hesitated when we first met in telling me the full details about your mother's disappearance? It's heartbreaking. I didn't want to break your heart. I'm Kai Wright. Tanya Mosley joins me next time on Notes from America. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Radiolab, talking about voting blocks, a.k.a. voting slices. Slices, yes, there are now slices. (laughs) Becca, you took a couple of your own to chase down, right? Yes, I did. Okay, so who did you look into? Wait, hold on one second. There's some... Is that a fire? I know, I heard it. it I've never heard that noise before. Oh, yeah, you should go find that. It sounds like a smoke detector. Yeah, hold on. God damn it. Okay, one second. So high. Would a broom be able to? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, Ah, I literally broke it. Oh, my God. Um. (laughs) Lulu? Yeah. Um, well, this is actually a perfect little segue into our next one. Uh, or I guess you could say, um, Things don't go as you planned. All right. So where are we going for this one? Okay, so... We are going to... What do you think we think of as the heartland of America, the heartland of manufacturing, and specifically to... The headquarters of Goodyear Tires. Okay. And why exactly are we here? Well, well, so I had reached out to a political consultant in Ohio who said that I should go look at Republicans up and around the Akron area who work for Goodyear Tires. And so I went looking for what we're calling a don't tread on me Republican. The pun there is on tread, like tire treads. Yeah, tire tread, don't tread on me, tread, tire. <laughs> Got it. Who are potentially up for grabs and might swing against Trump because of a tweet. Hello. Hi, Bob. Yes. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? So I first called up this guy, Bob Schrock. Uh, I work for Goodyear. I'm 48 years old, married with two kids. So Goodyear has about 64,000 employees. And Bob started out... Working on these massive machines. Making rubber for all these different car parts, tires, suspension. Mm -hmm. And how long have you worked at Goodyear for? So I've been at Goodyear for 27 years. I got hired in uh, July of 1993. And are you the first in your family to be a a Goodyear employee or does it stretch back? No, ma'am. So my grandfather worked there. My dad worked there. They're both retired. I work there now along with my brother. My grandmother actually worked there as well as my great-grandmother. Oh, my God. So it's a, it's a long history. Um, it's treated my family very well. Okay, so the tweet. So August 19th, 2020, so just a couple of months ago, Trump tweets, don't buy, I mean, like, should I pretend to be Trump? He, like, I don't know. There, his emphasis is, is important, maybe. So let me try again. Oh, please try to be Trump. Good- I'm, yeah. <laughs> okay. No, I, I, how would I even do this? Don't, no, I'm not going to do it. Okay. Don't buy Goodyear tires 
They announced a ban on MAGA hats. Get better tires for far less. This is what the radical left Democrats do. Two can play the same game, and we have to start playing it now. Wow. I saw it and was furious, just just furious over it. Because for Bob, he's like, first, first of all, look, Goodyear has a policy, and they've always had a policy. That political clothing, headwear, gear, you know, buttons, anything of the like has always been, you know, not appropriate at Goodyear. So the idea that Goodyear was just like singling out MAGA hats. It was just simply not true. But Bob said to really understand why someone like him was so furious about this tweet, you have to understand Akron, Ohio. Yeah, so so back in those days. So back around the turn of the century, Akron got the nickname the rubber capital of the world. So all of the big rubber manufacturers were, were headquartered here. So not only did you have Goodyear, Firestone, BF Goodrich, General Tire, uh, Mohawk Rubber. And in Akron, you have these neighborhoods like Goodyear Heights, Firestone had Firestone Park. Schools. You know, we have Firestone High School, we have Cyberling Grade School, which is, you know, those are all rubber names. If you went downtown, there was a factory or a shop. From one of those rubber companies just about on every corner. This area just sort of has the the tire industry in its DNA. Hmm. But then, jump ahead to the mid-90s. There is no turning back from the world of today and tomorrow. President Clinton signs NAFTA. The North American Free Trade Agreement. Which, as we know now, sent a lot of manufacturing jobs to Mexico and out of the country. And over time... Bob said in Akron... You know, the, the shops closed up. Thousands of people lost their jobs. It's nothing like it used to be. So then... Thank you, everybody. 2016... Donald Trump. It's great to be in Ohio. I love this state. Who campaigned in Akron, campaigned to make America great again. And bring back your jobs. Bring back all these American jobs. That have been taken from your state and every other state in the union. Jump ahead. We have a major projection. Trump takes Ohio. Donald Trump will take Ohio. In large part because he picked up these Republican votes because he said he was going to get out of NAFTA. He was going to protect American jobs. And then four years later, he writes this tweet. And for a sitting president, a sitting president of the United States to call for a boycott of uh, one of the oldest tire manufacturers in America, it's shameful. It's shameful. Oh, so is the idea here that Bob is Republican, but now he just can't with Trump because of the tweet or? Um, (laughs) Well, So, I mean, I guess I should just come out and say it like Bob is actually not a don't tread on me Republican. Bob is um, Bob is a don't tread on me Democrat. I won't predict a win for Joe Biden in Ohio, but I hope he wins Ohio because if he wins Ohio, it's over for for Trump. Oh, okay. So Bob explained to me he's kind of been a lifelong Democrat. It's generally Democrats that are more worker friendly. And Bob is like a union guy. My grandfather was in the union. My dad was in the union. Bob is in the union. And therefore typically votes Democrat. Huh. And is Bob like an outlier? No. I I would say that there's more Biden supporters in the shop than there are Trump supporters. Because Bob said a lot of his coworkers are pro-union. If you're a strong union supporter, I don't understand how you could support Donald Trump. So is this just a case of like your political strategist made a misassumption? Yeah, I mean, sort of. Like, there definitely are white blue-collar workers in Ohio who voted for Trump, who might turn against him because they don't think he delivered on his promises. Like, that's definitely a thing. Okay. But I do think the assumption here was just that these Goodyear employees that are also predominantly white, they work in manufacturing, that they all would have been Trump supporters. And that just doesn't entirely hold. Hmm. Well, Bob, uh, I'm wondering, do you know anyone who was pro-Trump? is now going Biden because of this tweet? Well, I do know that a friend of mine, um, who I believe is kind of a Trump-leaning type person, I do believe it did change at least his mind. Hello, Scotty. Hello. Hi, how are you? Not too bad. How about yourself? So the friend is Scott Oswald, also known as Scotty. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a bit about how you and Bob know each other? How do you guys strike up a friendship? Well, um, I tattooed one of his son's probably about six years ago. Oh, really? Yeah. So Scotty doesn't work at Goodyear. He is a 
tattoo artist. I had met pretty much his entire family that night. He has tattooed Bob's sons and and Bob and his wife, too. We just kind of all struck up a friendship. Do you feel like you kind of became a part of their family? Would you go have dinner with them or hang out at their oh, house yeah. or anything? Absolutely, for sure. And so Scotty told me when he heard about Trump's tweet. I just don't, I don't know. I just don't, I don't, I didn't really get it. And to me, I just took it personally because it affected so many people that I knew, you know. So soon after he texted Bob. Kind of hit him up, you know, was like, hey, what are your thoughts on this? I said, I felt like he acted like a 14-year-old child. In my eyes, he, he looks like a, a bully. And then I finally was just kind of like, well... You know, I actually could use some new tires. And he wanted to know if I could get him a discount on Goodyear tires because he wanted to run right out and support Goodyear. I just want to support a local company and I want to support my friend's business. And he did. He took his car to the shop. Bob, using his company discount, got Scotty four new tires. Oh. And that was that. That's a really sweet gesture. Yeah, but I mean... and. Then we got into it and we started talking politics. And I said, you know, Scotty, Bob says you're Trump leaning. Mm -hmm. That's how he described you. Um, is that how you would characterize yourself? Or at least like, you know, in 2016, is that how you would have characterized yourself? Um, and he says, no. Oh, huh. <laughs> Do you have any idea why Bob might have suspected you were Trump leaning? I do not know. <laughs> mm. I mean, he might have just taken a guess. And he guessed wrong. But, I mean, like, but Scotty actually isn't really isn't a voter. He's never voted before in an election. Huh. And he, really? he's never been... Ever? Yeah. I kept thinking like, ah, it's not important. It doesn't matter. Like, my vote doesn't really count. But he says since 2016... I sort of feel like that we've sort of taken like a giant step backwards as far as community and just being civil, you know? And he feels like Trump is dividing our country. I believe so, yeah. And um, I'm definitely hitting up the polls because I feel like that it's more important this time than it's been in quite some time. And so I asked him, who are you going to vote for? Um, I'd rather not say, but I think you know who I'm not going to vote for. He was a little hesitant and cagey, which is weird because it's like process of elimination here. Right. Like, obviously, he's going to vote for Biden. Yeah, but I mean... But we kept talking, and eventually Scotty was like... I really, uh, I was really into Andrew Yang. Huh. Yeah. And I was kind of disappointed that they didn't really give him a good platform to, like, express, like, what he wanted to do. And so, Scotty, what he's going to do is when he votes for the first time in this election, he's going to write in, probably, Andrew Yang. All right. Didn't see that one coming. Yeah, neither neither did I. And, you know, reporting on this, like, I've come to really appreciate just how hard it is to put people in some sort of group because you make all these assumptions that can just get upended. Yeah, right. And this next story is actually a pretty extreme version of that. Okay, so... Hi! The slice is the Chaldean-American community in Michigan. Metro Detroit is home to the largest concentration of Chaldeans outside of the Middle East, which is about 160,000. This is Crystal Kasab-Jabiro. She's a middle school teacher. What grade do you teach? Eighth. Oh my God, teenagers are not fun. Well, <laughs> I beg to differ. I, I do love them. But, uh, Crystal told me the Chaldeans are indigenous to Iraq started emigrating to the U.S. in the early 20th century to work the Ford plants, which is why so many of them live in Michigan. And the community is overwhelmingly Catholic. We are heavily invested in the Roman Catholic Church. This is Francis, which is a pseudonym. I'll explain why later. And how old are you? What? 52. Like Crystal, he's lived in the Detroit area for most of his life. I own a body shop that works on commercial vehicles like semi-trucks and trailers. And he says the Catholic religion is a major part of the Chaldean identity. For one thing, it's a huge part of why so many of them live in the U.S. in the first place. In Iraq, you know, 99% of the population is Muslim. So at one time, there was 2.5 million Chaldeans in Iraq. And ever since ISIS did a lot of damage to Chaldean villages, there's only like a couple hundred thousand left. So being Catholic, when it comes to politics... He says abortion is a big issue. To us, you know, you respect life and then you honor it. You know, you honor that person. But life always comes first. And because of that, most of the Chaldeans typically vote Republican. 
when the 2016 election came around. I just kept like going. Crystal says. Back and forth in my head. And I said, well. She didn't love Trump, but. I said, you know, I'm just going to do the Catholic vote. And I voted for Trump. And so did most of the rest of the Chaldean community. And it's worth noting, actually, that Trump only won Michigan by 10,000 votes. And especially because of this one area, Macomb County, where there is a large Chaldean American population. And how many, how many again are there? Did you say Chaldeans in Michigan or? There are about 160,000 Chaldeans. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the Chaldeans definitely helped get Donald Trump elected in 2016. But then something happened that complicated things. So it was June, June 11th. 2017. It was a Sunday. It was a very busy day for my family. Crystal spent the morning running from thing to thing, church, a soccer game. Then my daughter had a piano recital. A communion party. Then we went to the soccer banquet. It was boom, 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 (laughs) one thing after another from 8 o'clock in the morning. She gets home at around 7.45 p.m., I said, let me put some pictures up from the communion party. And she goes to Facebook to upload some pictures. Once I got on Facebook, I saw all these videos of people down at the federal building downtown. Screaming and crying. Saying, let him go, let him go. She sees a video of a man uh, being detained with an IV on him. ICE officers had fanned out across the area detaining Chaldeans. Oh, my heart fell. Uh, This is it. This is what we've been worried about. Whoa. So what what happened? Well, it's kind of complicated, but ICE picked up a whole bunch of Chaldeans because um, of a change the Trump administration made to their arrangement with Iraq when it comes to certain non-citizen Chaldeans in the United States. And how many people got detained? About 200. Wow. So the qu- the question is, is that could these detentions of Chaldeans, could this have soured enough people in this community to vote against him? And maybe Michigan could swing back to Biden. Because remember, there are only 10,000 votes that made the difference in 2016. Okay, wow. So Crystal, for her part... She kind of sprung right into action. She went down to the local high school, started connecting people with legal aid. I remember seeing a girl, uh, and I I looked at her and I said, what are you doing here? She said, my mom. My mom was detained. I said, what? And this was a girl I had went to high school with. You know, she was just shaking and she was nervous. You know, she just didn't know what to do. You know, I I guess you, you see these things and like they happen to other people. Mm-hmm. They happen to other people. We hear the deportations. They happen all the time, of course, to our Mexican brothers and sisters. And but we like never seem to think it's going to touch us. Did you feel responsible in any sort of way? I, I did. I know and I, I beat myself up for it for a long time. And that's why I worked. I worked so hard since then to vote him the hell out, to elect a real leader, a man like Joe Biden. Now, Francis, he didn't so much spring into action. I just took off. He fled. Because they have, they knew where I lived. Because Francis actually... I am not a citizen. ...is more or less hiding from ICE right now. Oh, I am. Yes, I am. I, I'm, I'm like any car that pulls up. I'm watching my cameras more than my TV. I get paranoid if a car pulls up. I don't know if it's them. I don't know... If they found out, I don't know. Like, I just don't take any chance. I don't leave home for two or three days. Does the fear impact you in other ways? I mean, do you, like, do you have trouble sleeping? Oh, my gosh. I was so bad that I had nightmares every night that people were grabbing me, agents. I was up, but I couldn't stop them. Like, I felt like I was up, but I was paralyzed. And that was every single night. And the worst part is like, I'll hear them breaking down the door, they're coming. They, like I can feel hands grabbing my arm trying to get me and I can't move. And it's all just a nightmare. If Biden were to get elected, do you think that you would stop hiding? I think that there wouldn't be a, this initiative to try to remove us. So I would not be in fear. No, I, I don't think I would be. And who do you support for president? Trump. 
Can you help me understand that? <laughs> I will. I will. I will. I will help you. This is the humility. I don't care about myself. I care more about conservative values and for this country more than myself. So if I have to suffer because of my beliefs, I will. I will. Is the idea then that y- you believe in prioritizing unborn life over, you know, living Chaldean Americans in your community? Yes. Yes. Yes, I do. What can happen to our lives? Like, we're not being killed. We may be being uh, moved around or having to go suffer a little bit until we find a country that will accept us and live. But that's doable. That's not death. That's not the same as abortion. That's not the same thing. I mean, it could be possible death, you know, in Iraq. It could be. But I'm just not willing to do that. Like, I'm not willing to sacrifice my beliefs. Producer, Becca Bressler. This episode was produced by Becca Bressler, Tracy Hunt, Matt Kilty, Tobin Lowe, Sara Kari, Pat Walters, with help from Johnny Moens. Also, if you feel like you belong to a special voting block that has not been mentioned here or in the media anywhere, think about it. Come up with a name and send us the name of that block on Twitter, on Facebook, and maybe take this episode as a reminder that whatever happens in the next few days and weeks, Beneath the political parties are people. Take me. Special thanks to Darren Samuelson, who is now at Business Insider and the team at Politico, illustrator Josh Cochran, whose 2016 map inspired this episode, Fernand Almondi, Tex Dozier, Susan Carroll, Lana Atkinson, Jay Levy, Geraldo Cadava, Matt Katz, Verilyn Williams, Miss Pamela, Nadege Green, Dale Baran, Vin Arsenault, and Aaron Wiki 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 Wickenden. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Jake Allen calling from Winona, Minnesota. Radio Lab was created by Chad Abumrad and is edited by Soren Wheeler. Lulu Miller and Latif Nasser are our co-hosts. Dylan Keith is our director of sound design. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, David Gable, Tracy Hunt, Matt Kielty, Tobin Lowe, Annie McEwen, Sarah Kari, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Shima Oliai, Sarah Sandbach, and Johnny Means. Our fact checker is Michelle Heron. Thank you. I'm Ira Flato, host of Science Friday. For over 30 years, our team has been reporting high-quality news about science, technology, and medicine. News you won't get anywhere else. And now that political news is 24-7, our audience is turning to us to know about the really important stuff in their lives. Cancer, climate change, genetic engineering, childhood diseases. Our sponsors know the value of science and health news. For more sponsorship information, visit sponsorship.wnyc.org.